Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series is called The Kingdom. Over the next four weeks of Advent, in anticipation of Jesus' birth, we're going to talk about where this idea of God's kingdom came from and why Jesus is the one who finally brought the kingdom of God to fruition in our lives. I hope you enjoy. Our Old Testament reading, or our first reading today, comes from Daniel, the seventh chapter, verses 13 to 22. Listen carefully for God's word. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all of this. So he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth, but the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess it forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and concerning the other horn which came up, and to make room for which three of them fell out, the horn that had eyes and a mouth, that spoke arrogantly, and that seemed greater than the others. As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the ancient one came. And then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High. And the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we're going to continue on with the rest of this vision. Uh, I'm sure that it's totally understandable to you what's going on here, so just bear with me and we'll work through it. This is what he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth that shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. This one shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High, and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law. And they shall be given into his power for a time, two times, and half a time. Then the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
All right, so I'm sure Judy told you that next week we're just in here, one service at 10 o'clock. You want to see how this ends? You may not care, but hey, if you want to see how it ends, you come here at 10 because she's preaching that night. It's not going to have anything to do with this. So we've been doing a sermon series called The Kingdom. Each week we're looking at where this idea of God's kingdom came from and how Jesus is the one who brings God's kingdom to fruition in our lives. And what we started off with was by talking about how this concept of God's kingdom, it didn't start with Jesus, even though he talks about it a lot, but in fact, it's been part of the Jewish religion for a long time. So each week, we start with a little bit of history, and then from there, we move from that history into the spiritual understanding of how does this help us with our spiritual journey as Christians. We've had two influences so far. The first influence is that of the kingdom of Israel, where we have talked about how in the Bible, at its zenith, we see that David and Solomon, they are in control. They're the kings of Israel. That's from about 1,000 to 931. If you're interested in looking, you have your little sheet, your cheat sheet right there, so you can look back at it. And at that point in time, what you need to know is that because that 70-year period, Israel was uh, an entity that was independent, wealthy, feared, and many people in Jesus' day, a thousand years later, they want to get back to this. They want a new king, a new David, who's going to rise up and lead them to a place where they are going to restore what Israel used to be. The second influence is what we talked about last week. We discussed this idea about the king of Persia, a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus, he is the first Messiah in the Bible. He's the first person to be called God's anointed one. And I told you that's kind of interesting because he's not Jewish, but what he does is he comes in and he literally saves the Jewish people from their oppression. He comes in and overtakes the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, as you can see on your list, they are the ones who have enslaved the Jews, and he ends up freeing them and allowing them to go back to their homeland. And by the time you get to Jesus 500 years later, well, People are looking for a new Messiah, a new Cyrus, who's going to bring them a kingdom of peace. And so today we move into the third influence, the third influence. And this comes to us from the prophet Daniel. But before we get there, I like to go back and look at our timeline. So you have your cheat sheets there in front of you. We ended off at 931 BC. That's where we started at least last time, and then we, we got all the way to 539. And essentially, what you need to know looking at all of this is that basically the kingdom of Israel, which was split in half, gets overtaken again and again by different entities. First by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, and finally by the Persians. And with the Persians, as we said with King Cyrus, they are freed and allowed to go back to their homeland. Well, today we're going to fast forward 370 years to 168 B.C., but before we do that, I want to walk you through the change in power structures because you know nothing ever stays the same, right? So, we've left off 539, and this is what King Cyrus owned. This is his kingdom right here. It actually goes much further to the east, but based on our map right there, that's what he's in charge of. Very, very large empire he owned. And the Persians, they're going to stay in control of this for quite some time. And we're going to see that around 400, this isn't, on your, this isn't on your cheat sheet, but around 400, what happens is, you're going to see this little orange blotch right there. The Greece is going to start coming in and slowly impeding on this empire. But where it really takes off for them 
is going to be around 3.30 when Alexander the Great rises to power and with all of his armies, he's able to come in and topple the Persian Empire. And so he ends up taking all of that away from the Persians and now all of that empire, it belongs to Greece. Now you've probably heard of Alexander the Great before, I would assume. He died very young. They assumed he was going to live a long time, but in fact, after 330, when he takes all this over, he only lives another seven years. And he ends up dying and he has no heirs. So what occurs is that there's a lot of jostling of power, but essentially, his generals come in and they carve up the empire for themselves. It's still the Greek empire, it's just split up among his generals. There are a number of them. We're going to focus on two today that really matter for us. General Seleucius and General Ptolemy. They carve it up and they create the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemic Empire. So it just basically belongs to them. Still Greek, just belongs to them. And what's going to happen is, over the next hundred years, these families who own this, they're going to pass it from generation to generation. Now, if you look on your cheat sheet, again, down there, you're going to see around 214 that Rome all of a sudden becomes a player in the Mediterranean. Now, what they're dealing with is stuff that's not on our map right now. It's going to take them a while to get over there and to conquer all of this, but they're important for what we're talking about today, which is why I had to bring it up. So, remember, you have these two empires, and what happens is 100 years later, A, they're not working together anymore. Those two generals are like, hey, what's yours is yours, what's mine is mine, we're all good. The families now have come down the generations, they're not working together anymore, and their empires are starting to collapse. And so what happens is they start looking for other opportunities to take over. And the next person to kind of take over the Seleucid Empire is this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV. As you can see, he's kind of got like the Michael Jackson thing going on right there in that photo. So what you can see is that Antiochus, he comes in in 175. That's where we are kind of on our timeline. And Antiochus, because his kingdom, he's part of the Seleucid Empire, right? Part of his kingdom to the east is just collapsing. So he says, you know what? The Ptolemic Empire to the south in Egypt, I could take that over. That's something that I could actually have for myself. So what happens is that guy, Antiochus, he comes down and he takes over the top part, which as you can see, the Ptolemic Empire, they own the Holy Land. So he ends up taking that over about 170. Now what you have to know, and this is why Rome becomes important with this, follow me, because I know we're talking about a lot of different things here, okay? But what happens is, Rome, they start to interfere, and that Ptolemic Empire, they can't defend themselves. So some people from Rome come in and say, hey, we know you guys, you're having some trouble right now. So would you like us to bring our troops in so that we can help you guys out, make sure that you're taken care of? And they say, okay, we'll take your troops because they know that Antiochus is coming back. Now on your map, you're gonna see in 168 that Antiochus, he's gonna come back down and he's gonna actually try to finish off what he couldn't do in 170. He wants to take over northern Egypt. So he's got his troops, they're coming down to the border and when they get there, they are met by this little man who is named Gaius Pompilius Lanus. He's an ambassador from the Roman Empire. And so he's standing there, you just imagine all these troops coming down, Antiochus gets off his horse, he walks up to this guy and he goes, hey, what's up? 
And Lanus, he says, I've come to deliver a message to you from the Roman Senate, that if you attack Egypt, you need to consider yourself at war with the Roman Republic. And so Antiochus, he says, let me go and discuss your proposal with my council. At which point, Lanus, he has a stick in his hand, this old man, he walks in a circle around Antiochus and he draws a circle in the sand around him, which is where we get this, this term, drawing a line in the sand. And he says, I need to know your answer before you step outside of this circle. Now Antiochus is a man who didn't answer to anyone. And so he was a little bit shocked by this, but he thought it through and he figured, you know, I don't think I want to go to war with Rome. He was barely strong enough to take over the Ptolemaic Empire. He wasn't going to be able to defeat Rome. So he says, all right, you win. And so he turns around and he starts going back home. Now this is where Jerusalem comes in to the picture. Because remember how he took over that part right there? He took over that part. He, the Holy Land is now his. Well, if he owns Jerusalem, the way that he's able to keep Jerusalem under his control is by making sure that the high priest is beholden to him. It would be like in the Catholic Church, you know, the Pope, it's like the highest figure in Catholicism. It would be like somebody coming in and saying, hey, you're going to now do what I say. And that's essentially what happened in Jerusalem. When he took over, he said, I'm going to put the high priest in place. He's mine. Which you can imagine the Jewish people, they really love that, right? Because obviously this is the person who oversees all their high holy days, all of this stuff. And so this guy now is a puppet for Antiochus. So that was in 170 when he did that. 168, he comes down, and what happens is there's a rumor when he's going down to fight. Remember, he goes down, he goes down to fight. There's a rumor that gets back up to Jerusalem that Antiochus has been killed in battle down in Egypt. Now, I just told you what happened. Was he killed in battle? No, he didn't even make it into Egypt, right? There was that little guy standing there, the Roman ambassador who said, turn around and go home. But this rumor gets back up to them that he's been killed. And they take that rumor as good information. So they oust the high priest because they figure Antiochus is dead, we can do our own thing. And they put their own high priest in place. Unfortunately for them, Antiochus, he finds out about this on his way back after just having been turned away by Lanus. And so he just suffered this embarrassing humiliation in front of his troops. And he decides, you know what we're going to do, guys? We're going to go into Jerusalem and show them what's what. So he marches his troops into Jerusalem, and over a period of three days, he slaughters 40,000 people in the streets of Jerusalem, takes them out of their homes, cuts them apart, just a bloodbath everywhere. And then he takes another 40,000, and he sells them into slavery. On top of all of this, he goes into the Jewish temple, and he installs a statue of the Greek god Zeus, which, if you know anything about Judaism, right? They don't worship anything like a statue. That's idolatry. But even worse is he goes to, he goes up and he starts sacrificing pigs on their altar. And if you know anything about Judaism, are pigs okay? No, no they don't eat pork. So they start sacrificing these pigs on the altar, and of course that makes it so that the entire temple has now been defiled. 
Happens in 168. That's on your timeline. Now, four years goes by, and eventually, over this period of time, the Jews are able to regroup. They're able to get themselves back together, and they are led by a family known as the Maccabees. And the Maccabees, they get everybody together, they revolt, they take Jerusalem back for themselves, and once they have Jerusalem back in their power, they rededicate the temple in an eight-day ceremony known as Hanukkah, which is exactly what your Jewish friends, if you have any, are celebrating right now. They are celebrating Hanukkah. And so the story I just told you is the story of Hanukkah. Now this is where Daniel's vision comes into play. Because Daniel's vision was written around 167, one year after the massacre in Jerusalem. Now, as you probably could see from what we read, that vision is not super clear, and I'm not going to get into all of the facets of it because it's complicated, but it's basically putting forth one basic message. And that message is that God is going to come from heaven. And when that happens, God's going to destroy all of the enemies of the Jews. So enjoy your victory for now, because it's not going to last. This is the first instance in the Bible of what we call apocalyptic literature. I know you've heard that word apocalyptic before. All it means is describing or prophesying the end of the world. Scary stuff, no doubt. But it's important here, because in this vision, Daniel's talking about a new kingdom, a kingdom where God is in control and where God is doling out justice to the enemies of the Jews. Indeed, in this vision is the first time that you see in the Bible this idea that God is going to merge heaven with earth. And if you were here last week, I told you about where that idea comes from, from King Cyrus and Zoroastrianism. If that sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook babble to you, what I just said, go back and watch the sermon from last week because you're going to need it to understand what I'm talking about right there. So... Here's the thing. It's the first time you see it. And when this merging happens, there's a new leader who's going to lead God's kingdom. This leader is called the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And the Son of Man, he's just a normal person like you or me, except for one thing. God has given him power to rule over everyone and everything. In Daniel's vision, this is very important. Every single person in the world, it doesn't matter your race, your religion, your ethnicity, your nationality, everybody's going to serve the Son of Man. Have, has anybody in here ever read the Gospels before? Have you ever taken a look at those? If you have, you probably know that 200 years later, when Jesus comes to power, what does he call himself? The Son of Man. He gives himself that title. Now, he does this, and it's quite brilliant when he does this. You have to give him credit for it, because here's the thing. By giving himself that title, everybody knows what he's talking about. Because every Jew knew about the war with Antiochus. It's like, it's like our July 4th, when we, got, we claimed our independence. Every year, right, they would celebrate Hanukkah, because that was when they got their independence back. So every good Jew knew about Hanukkah. They knew about that war. And so by saying, I'm the son of man, everybody knows about this vision with Daniel. And by doing this, he's essentially saying, hey, I'm the guy 
who's going to rule over everyone and everything. I'm the guy who's going to be the king of God's kingdom. I'm the guy who's going to dole out God's justice to the oppressors of the Jews. You with me? Maybe? Kind of? So far? All right. We're going to transition now. If you didn't pay attention to any of that, now you can wake up and you can come back. And we're going to talk about the spiritual side of this, okay? So when you get to God's kingdom in the New Testament, Jesus, because of Antiochus' influence, he ends up talking about how God's kingdom is going to bring great justice to the world. Now, each week that I've done this, I've talked about how we want to do like the kingdom, right? Like you want to be like David's kingdom. You want to be like Cyrus's kingdom. We don't want to be like Antiochus's kingdom. This is not something we want to emulate. It's something we want to prevent from happening. So when we look at what Antiochus did to the Jews, how he massacred them, and he brought them great injustice, we as Christians need to ask ourselves a question. If we are going to be bringing God's kingdom into the world, we need to start seeking out justice for those who cannot seek it out for themselves. And the question is, how do we go about doing that? This is perhaps, in my opinion, one of the most challenging aspects of God's kingdom for me personally, and I think for a lot of other people too. That word justice, it means lots of different things to lots of different people, does it not? Okay, but let me just define it for you. All justice means, it's very simple, is right treatment or behavior. That's all it means. That's what justice means. So if you are shown justice, all that means is that somebody is treating you correctly and fairly. So as Christians, our job in creating God's kingdom is to make sure that all the people in the world are treated with love, respect, and fairness. Easy to do, right? No. Very hard. In fact, I would say this is one of the most challenging things that we have been given. So many people in the world suffer from injustice. True? True? Oh, it is true. Don't doubt it. So many people, billions, suffer from injustice. Billions of people are not treated fairly. And this happens for a variety of reasons. It can be extreme reasons like war and violence. It can be lesser reasons that still hurt, like corruption, injustice in terms of discrimination, and things like poverty. Injustice is so huge and so hard for us to wrap our minds around that frankly it's a problem that many of us just say, eh, I think I'm just going to step away from it. It feels too big. It's been part of the human condition for a long time. It's been part of the fabric of our existence forever. And you want to know what the most vexing thing about injustice is? Is that we often contribute to it without even realizing that we're doing so. Let me demonstrate to you how you can contribute to injustice without even meaning to do so. And I can do that by talking about our place in the larger scope of human society. We live in Arlington Heights. Well, most of us live in Arlington Heights. Not all of you do, but most of us live in Arlington Heights who go to this church. Arlington Heights is one of the more affluent suburbs in America. True? True? All right, come on. Get with me here. Okay? True. Arlington Heights has a pretty high standard of living. True? Okay, we have fairly nice homes, yes? We have fairly good schools, yes? We have fairly low levels of poverty and crime. Yes? Yes, we do. Okay, here is the problem that we face. Because 
the problem with human society is that there are limited resources. Are there not? not there's just, that's just the truth. There's limited resources. So if you have a high standard of living, that means there are going to be a number of people on the other side of you who have less resources to work with. Just basic math, right? If I take all the resources and use them for myself, you have less to work with. But what really makes this problem so challenging and compounds it is the way that we tend to cluster ourselves together as people. This is what exacerbates the problem of resource distribution in human society. So what you find is that people with similar levels of resources tend to live together with other people who have similar levels of resources, right? So, Arlingtonites, why do they have such nice houses and such good schools and such low levels of poverty and crime? Because you have lots of people with a lot of resources who are living together in the same area. Now, I'm not trying to blame anybody for doing that. I live in Arlington Heights too, by the way, and I assume that you live here for the same reason that I live here, which is that I want my family to have a good life. Is that true for you? That's well, true, it's why I live here. I want my kids to have a good life too. I want them to have the best start possible. But here's the thing, by choosing to live here with the resources that I have and the resources that you have, that means that people with less resources end up living together with other people who have less resources. So if we go to a less affluent suburb, what you're going to find is that their homes are not quite as nice, their schools are not quite as good, and there's an uptick in poverty and crime. Likewise, if you go to a place like South Side of Chicago, where you have a cluster of people who have almost no resources, it should come as no surprise to us that these people live in dilapidated homes, that their schools are severely under-resourced, and that they have huge amounts of poverty and crime. Now, when you're talking about a place like Southside, not only are you talking about a lack of resources, but that tends to be the place where injustice thrives the most. Am I right about that? Okay. So, when we're talking as Christians about trying to eradicate injustice, something that we just have to acknowledge, and that's, this is the important thing, we have to acknowledge that a lot of injustice thrives by virtue of how we group ourselves together as a society. And this is not just an American problem, by the way. This is a human problem because it happens all over the world. Everywhere you go, people of similar socioeconomic statuses will live together. And this is why this problem hurts so badly, is because all of us here are just trying to do the best for our families, aren't we? I mean, I don't think anybody moved to Arlington Heights thinking, yeah, I'm going to stick it to somebody else, right? Like, you weren't trying to hurt anybody else by living here. You just wanted to give your kids the best possible start at life. True? True. Okay. But yet, the fact is, by making that choice, we are hurting other people around the world, and we are creating inequity and injustice. This, this fact is further compounded by the issue that if you live in a wealthy country like America, and we're not the only wealthy country in the world, by the way, there are other wealthy countries, that just living your life ends up contributing to the poverty and the injustice of other people around the world. You can't even walk into a grocery store in the United States without buying something that contributes to the poverty and injustice of somewhere else around the world. Just take coffee. Who drinks coffee in here? Okay, if your coffee beans if they come from Brazil or Guatemala, 
They're usually going to be picked by some kid working 12 hours a day in a field or an enslaved adult. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about drinking coffee. I'm just bringing up the reality of what's happening. That's all. So when you look at a situation like this, it's so huge, it's so vast, it's so interconnected that it feels like we can't even make a dent, right? And I haven't even brought up, by the way, issues of injustice that comes from sexism, racism, ageism, systemic discrimination, violence, and sexual abuse, all of which can affect you regardless of how many resources you have. Just because you have money doesn't mean that your life is going to be free of injustice. I look at all of you in here, I know you all are well-resourced, but I guarantee you, you have faced injustice at some point in your life, probably. All money does is it gives you more avenues of escape when injustice rears its ugly head. So when injustice is this big problem, how can we bring healing to a world where injustice thrives? And this is where I turn to Jesus, because I think Jesus had the right idea with this. You see, when he was dealing with injustice, he would deal with it on a one-to-one -one scale. So he would go out, and he would see you, and he would bring justice to that situation, because he would treat you with love, respect, and fairness. Do you think you can do that? I think you can, right? But here's the thing. You might sit there and say, uh, Alex, that's very, very nice. But that doesn't really make a difference. And I will tell you that it actually does particularly when you're dealing with people who are struggling. When I talk to somebody who works a low-wage job, they work very hard for not a lot of money, or I talk to somebody who's homeless, I always make sure to look them in the eye. You would be amazed how much justice can be brought to a person by simply acknowledging their humanity, because so few people do it. One of my favorite examples of this is when I was studying at Oxford University. Every night at dinner, we would eat at these super long tables, like Harry Potter-like tables, you know, the ones you've seen in the movies, right? Super long tables. And this is not like American schools, where you come in and, you know, it's a buffet, you get your food and you sit down. You are served dinner. And there are people who come out, they will serve you a three-course meal every night, is what you get when you're there. Now, a lot of the people serving, they're students. But there are some people who are there as their careers. And I remember when I was there, there was this woman who was much older. She had arthritis in her hands. It was clear that she didn't want to be doing this, but she had to because she had no other way to live. And every day when I would leave, I would go up to this woman specifically and I would say, thank you for serving me today. And over time, weeks and weeks in, she would come up to me and every night she would say to me, she would say, can I get you anything special for dessert? Can I do anything for you? Now, I didn't do that so that she would give me special treatment. I just did it to acknowledge what she was doing. And I remember all my friends around the table, they would say, why is she so nice to you? She's like mean to everybody else. And I thought to myself, well, if you just acknowledged her humanity, if you just said thank you for doing what you do, as opposed to looking at her as a servant who's just doing a job and you don't have to acknowledge anything that she's doing, then she would treat you the same way. It goes a long way. And remember, there are hundreds of students there. I was one of the few who ever said thank you to her for what she was doing. That's what I mean when I say it makes a big difference. And few people do it. Another way that you can bring justice to the world is by calling out injustice when you see it. 
Injustice derives its power from silence. We saw this with the Harvey Weinstein case, did we not? Okay, and all these other sexual abuse cases. Harvey Weinstein, a man who was not just sexually harassing women, but raping them and getting away with it for decades, was able to do so because nobody was willing to speak up. And yet, as soon as people started to speak up, what happened? He couldn't do it anymore. And all of a sudden, his power went away, and he's going to go to jail probably, which is where he deserves to be. If you see injustice, it's hard to do, but if you can speak out against it, that makes a difference. Don't let it thrive. You see a man sexually harassing a woman, say, hey, don't do that. I guarantee you they'll stop if you call it out. I guarantee it. You see somebody who's throwing out racial slurs, say, stop. We don't do that anymore. But if you really want to be the game changer, if you want to change injustice, you need to be the pillar on which a person can lean who has suffered from injustice when they need to rebuild their lives. You want an example? Let's say you know somebody who's been abused. They're in an abusive relationship with their boyfriend or their spouse. You don't just go to the abuser and say, hey, you need to stop. You go up to that person, the person who's being abused, and you say, you're going to come with me. You're going to live with me, and we're going to get your life back together. Because when somebody is suffering from injustice, sometimes you have to step in and take them out. Now, you may not be able to solve the problem of these kids picking beans for coffee in Guatemala, but you can do this, can't you? Absolutely you can. Everybody can do this in their lives. This is doable. So I want to end this morning by saying this, that if our job is to create God's kingdom here on earth, that that's what we are here to do, then we need to destroy Antiochus' kingdom in our hearts. We need to be able to speak up and have the courage, and you need to pray for that, because that's something that God can give you. You need to speak up and speak out when you see injustice. You need to bring justice to your daily interactions, and you need to be there for people who have suffered from injustice. Now, we may not be able to overcome all of it, but I really do believe that if we work together, we truly can bring God's justice to this world. May it be so in your life, and may you pray for the courage to stand up and speak out and make a difference. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.